Open up your Bibles, Romans chapter 2. Oh, you guys are there already. Awesome. If you have your study sheet, follow along with me in the introduction. Last week, we saw how the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of man, specifically that of the Gentiles. Now, I didn't belabor that too much last week, and there's a reason for that. It'll make more sense tonight. When man tries to bring God down to his level and change the truth of God into a lie... The Lord gives man up and over to the wicked desires of his heart. And I failed to mention that last week. Maybe it's because I was running out of time. But uh, you guys realize that that answers the question as to why there's so much wickedness on the planet? As to why there's such evil? Yeah, you can go back to Genesis 3 with the fall of man. You can even go back to Genesis chapter 6 with uh, these angelic beings leaving their first estate to come down here and to have marital relations with the daughters of God. And how that created this whole entire race of giants that plagued the nation of Israel. You can go that far. You can even go back to Genesis chapter 11 with the creation of the Tower of Babel where man organized religion came together. And as Brother Tim preached on this past week, man was never supposed to come together and unify. Man was supposed to go and to take God with him. But instead they came together and formed this religion where they said, let us build a way up to heaven using our own works and our own intellect. You can go back to all three of those monumental parts in the Old Testament, especially in the book of beginnings. But really, when we come down to it, the reason why there's so much evil going on in your school, the reason why there's so much wickedness that you see time and time again, the reason why you are tempted to give in and to give over is because of the fact that man ultimately wants nothing to do with God. He rejects the truth of God and embraces the lie. And as we saw not too long ago, that's what's going to happen in the tribulation period. Man will once again reject the truth of God. They're doing it now, and they're going to embrace the lie of the Antichrist. Continue on your intro. However, despite man's wicked unrighteousness, God has revealed His righteousness through the gospel, or good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins. You want a simple definition of the gospel? It's found right there in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died according to the scriptures, was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Not man's opinion. Not something I conjured up, because guess what? I'm not that smart. Amen. Certainly nothing that Andy conjured up. Hey, wait, what? <laughs> this week, we're going to look at the flip side of sin. If last week was all about man's unrighteousness that he does willingly and willfully, tonight is going to be looking at man's self-righteous good works. Point number one on your outline. We're going to see that, you know what, it doesn't matter. Just the same. Judgment is coming unto the self-righteous. Chapter 2, verse 1, follow along with me. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. What same things? Why did he start this off with therefore? Great question. And it also serves a dual purpose, because I accidentally, inconveniently, forgot to read verse 32 of chapter 1 last week. So, let's go ahead and kill two birds with one stone and read verse 32 of chapter 1. Can I get a volunteer for that? Andy. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. They know the judgment of God, and they still commit these things. And not only that, but they have pleasure hanging out with other people. Who do the same. Why? Because birds of a feather flock together. So do pigs and swine, by the way. And you start doing the things that we looked at last week on that list, you will be just like that. And you will defile yourself in unrighteousness. And he says, continuing right into chapter 2, therefore, in light of these things that we just hit on chapter 1, you're inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another... Thou condemnest thyself. Why? For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure, verse 2, that the judgment of God is according to what? Truth. Against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing 
that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So let's break this down on your outline. Letter A. To escape the judgment of God, as we just read, it is to turn to the goodness of God. The do-gooder, the self-righteous, the one who looks and says, man, at least I'm not like those people. Which if you want an interesting story, go to Luke chapter 18 later and read about how there was a Pharisee and there was a, a publican, a man who was just of low estate, a common man. And both of them went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, the self-righteous one, as you study out Pharisees, he goes, man, Lord, I am so glad I'm not like that publican over there. Because, man, I go to church all the time. I have a humongous Bible. I make sure that everybody sees my Bible. I go to church. I pray three times a day. I give everything that I have to work into the cause. That's one example. Romans chapter 2. And then you have the other guy, the publican, who in chapter, who very similar to chapter 1. You know what he does? He realizes his state before a holy and just God, and he just smites his chest and goes, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the proper heart attitude to have. That's the proper heart attitude to have. And if you want to escape the judgment of God, do-gooder, you need to turn to the goodness, not of yourself, but of God. Because in point one, any subjective reasoning one has concerning their moral standing with God must, must be filtered through absolute truth. Now, in that point on your outline, there's a couple of mouthful words there. Subjective reasoning. Absolute truth. What is this? Well, for starters, there's kind of two schools of thought. You have objective reasoning and subjective reasoning. Any of you guys heard of this? Anybody take a philosophy class at school yet? Or sociology class? You might hear these things. Well, then you will in college. If you go to college. You don't have to. More on that in another time. <laughs> Seriously, some people get in the mindset, parents, if you're listening, calm down. Sometimes people get in the mindset of, well, this is just what everyone does. This is what I do after I graduate. I have to go to college. Some, yes. Others, maybe not. Just maybe start praying about it now. And both of this, objective reasoning and subjective reasoning, they both line up with another philosophy or school of thought called absolute truth versus, anybody know what this one is? Relative truth. And both of these, especially subjective and relative, these are two schools of thought that have only come about in about the last 150 to 200 years now. Gee, if only I knew what happened about 200 years ago, according to Revelation chapter 3, as it pertains to church history from a recent Revelation study someone did recently, I might know that around that time is when man, God's man, God's churches started to forsake the Bible and started to embrace the wisdom and the philosophy that is taught amongst Pharisaical people. And you'd see that these two philosophies came up around the same time, about 200 years ago. Subjective reasoning is basically the idea that truth, it's what you view it as. It's your truth. Objective reasoning, it's truth that is independent of one's own perception, feelings, or imaginations. So in other words, your understanding of truth is dependent upon something that is outside of you. That is outside of your realm. It has something that's concrete and physical. Absolute and relative truth are the exact same thing. Absolute truth is something that is concrete. It is objective. Whereas relative truth is, well, what do you think this means? What do you think this passage of the Bible says. Be careful if you guys go to other Bible studies because that is something that is said a lot in a lot of Bible studies. They sit around and go in a circle. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? Well, I got news for you. You can't have a whole bunch of people gathering together debating over a Bible verse and have everybody say something different that doesn't line up with what the Bible says at all. It can't work that way. The Bible says what it means 
and it means what it says. The Bible is absolute truth. It is objective reasoning. It is not the ranting and ravings of lunatics. That would be subjective. It would be relative truth. And so when it comes to this whole idea of our moral standing with God, any kind of subjective reasoning that somebody has, your friends at school or maybe even someone in this room, it must be filtered through what absolute truth says. I got news for you. You can believe all day long until you're blue in the face that the sky is green. You have the freedom to do so. But just because you believe the sky is green doesn't make it true. That's subjective reasoning. That's relative truth. The concrete facts of the matter are the sky is blue. That is objective. That's absolute. And sorry, 2 plus 2 will always equal 5. I knew it. It's a joke. Thank you for getting it. <laughs> 2 plus 2 will always equal 4. It will never equal 5. It will never equal 3. That is absolute. Independent of what you may think it might mean. It's funny. There's a big push to try to say that if you believe that... They're going to attack your character. Have you guys heard this? That math is deemed racist yep. in critical race theory? Something that they're trying to push into the education systems right now, specifically with college campuses, and trying to trickle its way down into high school ca uh, campuses, high schools, schools, whatever. It is a campus. Trying to trickle it down to you guys. It's a way just to kind of pass everybody. It's a way to just try to get everybody through the system and to not have it based upon merit, have it based upon good, uh, or what's the word I'm looking for? Good grades. There you go. So, point one. Any subjective reasoning one has concerning their moral standing with God must be filtered through absolute truth. Well, what is truth? What is absolute truth? According to John 14, 6, a verse all of us should have memorized, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the what? And the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And we know because of John 1, 1, that Jesus is the word. And he says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You will find truth in Jesus Christ. And you will find Jesus Christ in this book. This is absolute. This book does not change. If it changes, God would not have warned us in three different places at the beginning of the Bible in Deuteronomy, in the middle of the Bible in Proverbs, and at the end of the Bible in Revelation, not to add, diminish, or change His words. And if his words do change, if it is subject to other people and what they view truth as, then, according to Titus 1-2, when it says that God cannot lie, well, he just proved that he's a liar and we can't trust this book and what the heck are we even doing here? Let's go home. So truth is somewhere. Truth is found in Christ, in the Word of God. It can't be what your friends at school think. These are the types of conversations you need to be having with them. When it comes to the Bible, when it comes to what people think about what happens to you when you die, what a great question to ask somebody and to see what they say. And if you follow along with the rest of tonight's message, you will have a way to stop, the Bible says, their mouths from any kind of truth that they deem fit that is independent of something that is concrete and absolute. It's right here in Romans chapter 2. And the concrete absolute truth is, according to Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die. But after this, the judgment. And as we just saw in these verses, judgment is coming to those in Romans chapter 1 who love their sin and know they're sinning and don't give a lick if it's right or wrong or not. And judgment is coming to the self-righteous. Either way. Point two. You see, instead of focusing on your own goodness, you need to do what verse four says and consider God. Look at it again. He says to the self-righteous, are you despising the riches of His goodness 
and forbearance and long-suffering. He's talking about how patient God is. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Consider Him. Bible says in Hebrews 12, I believe it's verse 3, Consider Him that endured such contradiction of sinners against Him. Jesus Christ went to the cross knowing full well, because he's 100% God, that one day after his resurrection and throughout all of the next 2,000 years, there would be people who constantly contradict what his word says with their own lifestyle. And even knowing that they are a contradiction and they are hypocrites, he still died for them because he loves them. Those are your classmates. Those are your family members who know not Christ. Those are your friends. Consider Him. Consider His goodness. Man. Alright, so what are some things you can consider that are His goodness? Can anybody think of anything off the top of your head? How has God showered you in His goodness lately? Isabella. Health, absolutely. That's one thing everyone ought to be thankful for on a daily basis, especially, I don't know, maybe it's different when you have kids, but I just know, like, you know, when they go through something, you can't help but just constantly thanking God for their health and for them to be uh, feeling better, doing better. And then, of course, it makes you think about yourself and your own health, knowing that in a second, it can all be taken away from you. What else? Kendall? Just from, like, people, whether they're encouraging you or even just, like, yeah, because obviously they see something that is different, something that is sanctifying you, setting you apart from everybody else. Yeah, how else has God showed and revealed His goodness to you guys this week? Andy. I, I was just telling Megan, I know two people who died this week. Hmm. One my age dropped dead Saturday morning. Another was a former supervisor of mine, and just thankful just for how God just still shows His mercy and grace upon us. Yeah, I know someone that was as well as health. We don't think that for granted because we don't know when it's our last day. No, nope. we're, we're not promised. No, and just put things in the, in the perspective because they have a four-year-old, mm. and it's like, oh my goodness, man, you just don't know. I don't know if I've mentioned it or not before, but uh, when we were in Mexico, I got a text from Heather. She was like, uh, just so you know, the entire house shook. And it sounds like someone's trying to get into the garage. And this was like probably, I think, 11.30 at night, Mexico time. So it was like 12.30, 1 o'clock. And uh, then the next day, I, I flip on like uh, the news, like on my phone for local in this area. And I see my work, Timken Steel. Massive explosion happens and three are in critical condition. Timken Steel is probably a good 15 minutes, 10 minutes away from where we live in Perry, and Heather felt the explosion shake from that far away. You know he just died. Yes, I work at that company. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, one of the guys ended up succumbing to his injuries. Left behind three kids, three boys, seven, four, and two, I think it was. Never know what a day will bring. Consider the goodness of God. Just the fact that we have breath in our bodies for today. Lamentations 3.22 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. Just the fact that you woke up this morning, you're able to breathe. Especially when you consider that word compassion, it means suffering with another. God has compassion on you and it doesn't fail. He suffers with you. He has sympathy on what you go through. Do you know why? Because according to Hebrews chapter 4, it says that Jesus Christ, He's a high priest that's not like the Old Testament high priest. No. He was like in all points tempted like we are, only without sin. Do you understand and fully comprehend everything that that means? There is a lot packed in that one verse that, honestly, we could camp out here the rest of the night just talking about that one verse. God Himself, in His human form, went through literally everything you go through and face on a daily basis. He experienced it all. 
Everything that you battle up here in your mind, that you're even too nervous and fearful or afraid to even mention out loud to somebody else, He gets it. The only difference is, because He's God, He didn't sin. But He went through and understands what it is you're going through and struggling with right now. He understands when you went through your camp commitments and you put down that thing, that obstacle that is going to try to keep you from fulfilling what God did in you and through you at camp, He gets it because He experienced it too. He was tempted in all points, the Bible says, like we are, but without sin. So talk about compassion suffering with you, having sympathy on you because of what you go through, Christ gets it. And it's because of that He continues to give us breath in our bodies every single day when really we should be consumed. Continuing in that thought, another reason to consider the goodness of God that we don't get what we deserve right away. We're going to talk more about this as we go on in Romans chapter 2, but I love this verse in Ezra. Chapter 9, verse 13, it says, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, the entire list, the gamut of the list of sins that we went through in chapter 1, seeing that thou, our God, hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve and hast given us such deliverance as this, it's criminal what we're allowed to get away with. It's criminal especially on the other side of the cross for those of us who have received him he's very gentle and merciful consider the goodness of God in this third point consider that he is always ready and willing to hear us when we call to him Psalm 86 5 for thou Lord art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon Him. Man. Do you see the weight of your sin there in that verse? He is plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. There's also a story in Luke chapter 7 you should probably write down and check out later. It's a parable, and Christ is talking about how there's two people that owe a debt. One owes a lot of money. The other one doesn't owe so much, but both owe a debt. And the master to whom the debt was owed, he forgave both of them. And it's at this point Christ asked his disciples, who loved the master more? And they're like, obviously it's the one who owed more money. And he's like, yeah. Because when you have much you're forgiven... You love much because you realize the gravity and the weight of what you've been forgiven of. To whereas when you are forgiven little, a little bit harder to appreciate just what Christ had to go through for you. Why do I bring this up? It's because of really what I look at with chapter 2 as I look at the room right now. By and large, most everybody in this room grew up in church. If chapter 1 is more about those who are unchurched, living completely without a care in the world, doing what they want, then chapter 2 is for all you church kids. And when you get saved at a younger age in your life because you heard the gospel so many times and eventually you come to that point of decision, that, that point of realization where you need to make your faith your own, by and large, for most of you, it happens at a young age. You don't have much sin at that point that you've been forgiven of. And I used to get so bummed out because I'm very similar like that, where I got saved at the age of 14, and most of my sin came afterwards, and that's when it clicked for me. And I don't think it is with you yet, and you really need to stew on this. The longer I've been saved the more I realize just how flawed I still am and how sinful I still am. Here I am now, 35, been saved for longer than I've been alive, or for longer than half of what I've been alive. And I get it now. 
I see finally just how much I've been forgiven. I see the much that Christ forgave. See, in your minds, and it was for me too, when you received Christ at a young age, it's very easy for you just to look back to your life up to that point. Now as 35, I look back to the last 35 years of my life, both before I got saved and after I got saved, and all the stuff that I've gone through, thought, and said then, or since then. And that's when I realize, huh, oh yeah, when Christ paid the price for my sins, it was my sins before I was 14, when I was 14, and everything I'm thinking going to do until I take my last breath. That's right. Part of my reason for wanting to go over Romans is because there are so many things that are chock full in this book, especially pertaining to your salvation, that I don't think much of us in Christianity truly grasp and comprehend. And this book is just chock full of all kinds of goodies. This is one of them. I want you guys so much, to, when you start your day, and even for me, I've been starting my day off recently a lot less in the Word of God and more in prayer, of just being thankful for things like health, being thankful for things like having breath in my body, being thankful for things that are like, man, how much the goodness of God has wiped away all of my sin, and He is so plenteous in His mercy. To consider these things, Man, you want to talk about fueling your Bible reading after that? Try spending some time just in prayer before you read, thinking about those things. It'll change the way that you think and act the rest of the day. So letter B. To refuse the goodness of God, if you're not willing to consider those things, well, it's to accept His wrath upon your unrighteousness. Look at verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself. You know what you're storing up? You know what you're treasuring when you don't receive the goodness of God that leads to repentance? You're treasuring up against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Verse 6. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Jump down to verse 8. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the what? Truth. The truth, not a truth. Who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Here's what they're going to get. Tribulation and anguish. Mark it down. Your friends, your family members who they've never come to that point of decision in their life where they needed to receive Christ as their Savior, they needed to stop riding the coattails of their parents' faith, of their siblings' faith. Friends and family members of yours who don't make their faith their own, if they reject the, and don't obey the truth and make it personal, they're going to enter tribulation, all right. Because one day when God raptures and calls all of us Christians home, tribulation period will unfold, and it's going to be filled with anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's funny. He mentioned that last week in chapter 1. We're getting somewhere with that. Because in verse 11, there is no respect of persons with God. The filthy, disgusting, degenerate sinners who commit the things that he did in chapter 1, that guy's going to get judged just as much as the self-righteous do-gooder who's gone to church all of his life, who's been trusting in his own works and his own goodness to get him to heaven, there's no respect of persons when it comes to Judgment Day. Both are going to be called up to the God. And if they do not have a sin bearer, it's not going to be good for them. Oh, I forgot this verse. 2 Peter 3.9. Sorry, going back a little bit. Consider the goodness of God that He's been patient with us, waiting for us to come to Him. And that's the verse where it talks about He is long-suffering. We just read that in Romans 2, and he's not willing that any should perish. Do you realize your friends, as much as they might, I hesitate to use the word friends, the kids at school that maybe um, make fun of you or persecute you because you're carrying your Bible with you, you realize that as much as you might want them to perish, God is not willing that they should perish? Consider that when you look at them next. So, recompense. I have this up here on the screen. You know what the word recompense means? To compensate back. To compensate back. Great job, Andy. You can read. 
That's why you asked the question before you put the slide up there, Corey. I say the word recompense because God uses this word back in Romans chapter 1. I wanted to talk about it last week, and I'm like, no, it makes more sense to bring it up here. Because look again at verse 5 where he says that, you know, if you reject and don't repent after the hardness and the impenitent heart, you're treasuring up to yourself something. You know what it is? It's payback. You see, on point one on your outline, everyone who continues in their sin is storing up for themselves payback from God. I mean, it's in the word itself. That's why I love the English language. Recompense. Compensate. It's a wage. It's a payment. Re. You're getting it back to you. What you have been treasuring up here on this earth by living it out. And don't make any mistake about it. People who are self-righteous and caught up in their own good works and look how pristine and proper I am on the outside. They get off on that just as much as anybody in chapter 1 gets off on doing the things that we saw them do last week because there's no respect of persons. They do that, and they're treasuring up for themselves judgment from God. I have this passage, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Hey, you know another reason why people just continue to have fun and why people just continue to sin? Because... They don't always get what's coming to them right away as soon as they do it. They don't always get what's coming to them right away. That's why kids, little kids, continue to disobey. Because sometimes they think they can get away with it. Sometimes they think they can escape the judgment that's to come. And I love it because God says, hey, are you getting ticked off at the people in your school that continue to sin and have so much fun and because you're a Christian you can't partake in those things? Yeah, it's okay, because David did too in Psalm 78. He wanted God to take him out. And then he says, oh, and then I considered their end. One day, they are going to get what's coming to them. They're just, as Romans 2.5 says, they're just treasuring up all of this stuff. All of their horrible deeds and all of their do-goodery self-righteousness is just storing up. Because one day, sentence is going to be executed. God might take his time. He might not always get people what's coming to them right away. They might get away for it, get away with it for a time, but payback's coming. Payback's coming. Uh, look down at point number two on your outline. But to those who respond to God's revelation of truth, there's hope for that soul. Look with me in verse seven. He says, "To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life." They get something. Jump down to verse 10. Glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also the Gentile. Wait a second. This seems weird because we're talking about do-gooders. We're talking about the self-righteous. And that verse seems to indicate that if they seek those things, that God's going to let them into heaven? No. And this is where a careful observation of every single word of a verse is very, very important. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks' time on Sunday morning about every word of God, paying attention to it. You see, what we're going to see next week in chapter 3 of Romans is that there's none that doeth good and that there's none that seeketh after God. The verse we just read in verse 7 is about people who are seeking glory, honor, and immortality. It is possible for people in the jungles of Africa, to go back to an example we talked about last week, who have never seen a Bible before, who have never even heard of Jesus Christ before, when they see the testimony of creation, and they know, man, this one sun that's in the solar system, it gives life to everything that's around. I want to make sure that I have life so that I can seek and live forever. God does something with a heart like that. If you don't believe me, hold your place here. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Because this happened. Well, that's the problem, Andy. You shouldn't believe me because we're talking about absolute truth. Don't believe any man. Believe the absolute truth of the Word of God and let the Word of God speak for itself. Acts chapter 10. Follow with me in verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band. 
Uh, I don't have time for jokes there. Verse 2, a devout man. Did you catch that? He's devout. He's sincere. And one that feared God with all his house. Hmm. Which gave much alms to the people. Man, he gave away. He, he gave offerings constantly to the work of the Lord. And prayed to God always. All right. Rock solid believer. Verse 3. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming to him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, God, thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. In other words, God's saying, I hear you. I see that you are seeking glory, honor, and immortality. You're seeking eternal life. You know what God does with a prayer like that? If you read on in Acts chapter 10, Paul, or sorry, God sent Peter to go meet with Cornelius. And you read through all of Acts chapter 10, and Peter's in this dilemma. He's like, man, I can't go to the Gentiles, Lord. I'm supposed to go to the Jews. God's like, no, I want you to go to this Gentile named Cornelius. There's a reason for it. And then you flip over to chapter 11 and do that. And you see what that reason was. You see why God took a prayer of Cornelius's and had him take Peter and send him to Peter, or send Peter to him, rather. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 12. And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. This is Peter talking now. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. Context, it's Cornelius. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in the house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who, verse 14, shall tell thee words whereby thou, Cornelius, and all thy house shall be what? So Cornelius, even though he was a devout man, one who, it says he feared God, he gave offerings to the work of God. Probably even gave of his time in some service projects. And he prayed always. He was lost. He was seeking... You can flip back to Romans chapter 2 now. He was seeking glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. He was seeking all those things. And notice how it doesn't say that everybody who seeks those things, that because they're seeking for it, they have it. No. See, just like Cornelius, the do-gooders, the self-righteous, they too need to come to a point of decision. And to tie this in with last week with the testimony of creation for the people that are in Africa, when they have a desire to know who the one true God is, God is always faithful to send them a missionary. Are you willing to be that missionary? Because I guarantee you there are people in your schools who want eternal life and they're seeking for it. God wants to send someone their way. But I have a feeling that there might be people in this room who are like Peter in Acts 10 who are resisting, saying, Not so, Lord, it can't be me. Send someone else. Testimony after testimony in church history. We even do skits about them at our missions conference of God sending missionaries to Africa, to Asia, places where the Bible had never been before, and people saying with their own tongues, we have been waiting for someone to come and tell us about who the one true God is. That's Peter and Cornelius right there. So people can seek after these things. They still have to come to that point of decision, though. And maybe there's some of you in this room that need to come to that point of decision because you've been trusting in your own works. Even though you grew up in this church or a church similar, you might have only been trusting in your works and how good you are. Remember, there's no respect to persons with God. So those who respond to God's revelation of truth, there is hope for their soul. God will send a witness. God will send a messenger, but you still have to receive the message. Point number two. 
So we saw judgment is coming into the self-righteous at point one. Point number two, righteousness cannot come from obeying the law of God. He goes, boom, just bleeding right into the second half of this chapter, and they're tied together. And we're going somewhere with this. Uh, can I get a reader for verses 12 to 16? Jack. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So in these verses Jack just read, we have... The second testimony that God gives the people. See, last week we saw the first testimony that God gives to all of the world, and it's the testimony of creation. God is speaking through creation. The second testimony, it's the law of God, which as we just saw, is written on the hearts of everybody, and their conscience bears witness to it. On your outline, letter A, along with creation, God reveals the second testimony, in case you weren't following along there. The second testimony he uses to bring us to the foot of the cross. So what is the law? Well, again, don't take my word for it, but it's the Ten Commandments. How do we know that? 1 John. Uh, by the way, cross that out on your, on your outline there. It should be 1 John, not the Gospel of John. 1 John 3, verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Well, that doesn't quite tell me that it's the Ten Commandments there, but I'm getting to that. But that is a very important verse because we need to know, man, when you commit sin, you're breaking the law. It's as simple as that. What is this law? Romans 7, 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, God forbid the law is not sin, but when you transgress it, it becomes sin. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the... What? Ah, thank you. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Where do we get that from? Thank you. Where's Ray Comfort says the tin. I'm from New Zealand. We say tin is tin. You gotta know him. Alright. Letter B. Or sorry, number two. Our conscience bears witness to the fact that we know right from wrong and we will be judged thereby. I want to point something out to you guys. You see how in verse 13 he says, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified or made right with God. See, Corey, you keep contradicting it. This entire chapter is supposedly about do-gooders. It's supposed to be about the self-righteous. And we keep looking at all these verses that show, man, if you do this, then you'll be justified. No. If you do the law, you will be justified. I believe what the Bible says. Do you? Is he, is he saying a trick question? I don't know. Do you believe that if you do the law, you'll be justified? Yeah. Here's the thing, though. In James 2.10, it says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. So you see, yeah, if you could keep the law... You'd be just, but we can't. There's one who did, and that's why he has the power to make us just when we repent and trust in Christ and put our faith in him and call upon him to save us. So this law that's written on our heart, it bears witness with our conscience. You know what conscience means? Break that word down. Can you do that, Andy? Con. He can't do it. It means with, with and science, science means knowledge. With knowledge. It is your understanding of knowing and discerning between right from wrong. How do we know what right and wrong is? Well, it's the law, the Ten Commandments. It points to that. Hold your place here and turn over to Galatians 3. He just continues to hammer this point home because I don't want to just leave you with James 2 to say, well, yeah. You would be able to be justified by doing something. Yeah, you can't. That's the problem. 
Galatians chapter 3. If you want a book that is very, very similar to Romans, it's the book of Galatians. Look in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the what? Law. Law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He reinforces the point of what we just saw in Romans 2.13. That, hey, if you start doing the works of the law, but then you stop or you transgress, you're now cursed. That's every human being that's ever stepped foot on the planet. You are now cursed. He goes, it continues in verse... Uh, 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Look down to verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. It is written, oh, don't miss this. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You realize that at that point when Jesus Christ went to the cross and he hung on this tree, that for that time that he was suspended in between heaven and earth, suspended between God and man, the God-man himself took all of your sin. Again, the sins you committed before your moment of salvation, the sins you're involved in right now, and everything you're going to commit until your very last breath, however long that is. He took it all. And He became that curse so that you don't remain a curse until your dying day. Consider the goodness of God and His forbearance and long-suffering toward you. Do not take it for granted. Back to Romans 2. We're wrapping up here. Testimony of creation. It speaks. We saw that in Psalm 19 last week. Romans chapter 2. On top of creation, God has put the law, the Ten Commandments, the entire law, knowing right from wrong, if you want to summarize it, in each and every single one of your hearts, in every single heart of everyone you go to school with. It's there. They know the difference between right and wrong. You just need to expose it. As a salesman, this was a tactic I was taught a while ago, is that when you're going out to make a sale to somebody, you know what you need to do? Because... Everybody you sell to, they are already getting what you're trying to sell them from somebody else. Mm -hmm. So you know what you're supposed to do? Discover a pain point. Find out what it is about what they're getting from somewhere else and find the flaw in it. And you know what you do? It's like they call it a pain point because they're like, oh, this hurts. Whenever I can't get this from my supplier, this hurts. So you know what you do as a salesman? You Hit keep poking the pain point. You keep making them think about it. Evangelism and salesmanship, very, very similar. Don't be a salesman. I just think about a, a, a sleazy car salesman. Don't be that. But they're very, very similar. When you're talking with people and sharing the gospel and you bring up the Ten Commandments, I'm not going to do it for the sake of time because we've all been through it. You guys went through the evangelism class not that long ago. When you mention, hey, have you ever told a lie? You ever thought this way towards a girl or a guy? Have you ever thought this way towards killing somebody else? When you bring that up, keep poking the pain point. Don't let them, because their minds are going to try to dismiss the idea. They're going to try to get rid of it. They're going to try to not think about that sin because their conscience is convicting them along with the Spirit of God working in you and through you as you're ministering to them. Don't give them an inch. Keep poking the pain point. Bring up another law. Bring up another commandment. Until they get overwhelmed and they see the weight and the gravity of their sin and the curse that it has placed upon them. And then you get to bring them the blessed hope. Hey, would you like that weight to be lifted off of you for all of eternity? Let me tell you what God did 2,000 years before you were even born because of His great love that He has for you. Bring that to the table. We're going to see it again next week in Romans chapter 3, but do you understand that when you guys hammer these things, when you bring up these pain points to your friends, it makes it to where whatever excuse they have for not receiving Christ, it stops their mouth. They've got nothing. I remember 
buddy of mine, some of you guys know him from uh, when we used to do VBS together, Ben. Um, I remember he came back from a mission trip with Stephen down to uh, Costa Rica. We had a missionary down there. And this missionary down there, he introduced the One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven book by Mark Cahill. He introduced the Way of the Master series with Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron. You guys probably don't realize it, but there was a point in time before Harvest Evangelist Ministry was even at this church. Or we even had a ministry where we did that. And we just kind of witnessed and evangelized the people best we could. But to actually read that book of one thing you can't do in heaven and to go through the law and the Ten Commandments and use it as a tool, not the only tool, of witnessing and evangelism... It like blew my mind and I remember going up and I remember talking with so many people in the college campus with Ben and trying to witness to them and it didn't matter whatever they tried to throw out, whether it was evolution or, or, or you know, I'm just having too much fun, etc. and so forth. Every single time you present the law and every single time you present the fact that you realize you're guilty according to what the Bible says, right? According to absolute truth. Yeah. So what does that mean for you? I guess it means that I'm going to be spending forever separated from God in eternity. Yeah. So would you like to receive Christ? No. But that might be the first time in their entire life that they were willing to admit it. That they're willing to admit, I love my sin so much even if it sends me into hell. I don't want to surrender to Christ. Stops the mouth. It stops the, the mouth or the, the lies that they believe in their own head or the relative truth that they've been clinging on to, their own understanding of who they think God is, their own understanding of what is going to be judged and what isn't going to be judged. Man. You see, in letter B, along with Gentiles, the Jews are also all under sin. And I mention that because this is where he kicks off the second half of this chapter here. Real quick, look at verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. Hey, I got the Ten Commandments. Hey, I'm one of God's people, so of course I'm going to be okay with Him on Judgment Day. Verse 18, And knowest His will, and approvest the things which are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Just because you have a form of knowledge doesn't mean you have knowledge. Just because you have a form of godliness on the outside does not mean you're godly on the inside. Verse 21, Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Do you see how he's connecting it in with the self-righteous do-goodery of the first half of the chapter here? He continues, and he's bringing the law into it. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Okay, I read a little bit too much when I wanted to break this down. But he's talking here, so it's, it, we're going somewhere with this. Last week, yes, is it about the people who didn't grow up in church and are just having all of this frivolous fun, doing whatever sinful things they want and all of these disgusting things? Yes. But you know what we also saw last week? If you had to summarize chapter 1 in a sentence, it's that all of the Gentiles are under sin. And yes, this week and tonight, are we talking about self-righteous do-gooders, the ones who grew up in church, the ones who grew up knowing the Bible inside and out, knowing all of the stories? Are we talking about them? Yes. But you know what chapter 2 is predominantly all about, if you had to summarize it in one sentence? The Jews are all under sin. Because aside from a, a person who grows up in church all of their life, what better representation of self-righteous do-gooders than the Jewish people? 
So you know what the summary is? And this is what's going to lead right into chapter 3 next week. We talked about it a week ago. There's only two types of people in the world. And no, this isn't going to contradict to this Sunday's lesson. You'll see on Sunday. You are either a Jew or you are either a Gentile. As we talk about God's playbook for righteousness and how God is using Paul to systematically set forth the doctrine of Christianity, he starts off this book by letting everyone know it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, you are all under sin. What a great place to start. What a great thing for everyone to know when you go and start witnessing and start preaching and teaching the gospel to your friends at school. Don't go up and just start giving them a, a, a life vest and say, hey, here, take this. If you step on a plane, I don't want the flight attendant to give me a, a uh, skydiving backpack. What's that called? Parachute, thank you. <laughs> Wednesdays are my long days. Give me a break. Flotation device cord. <laughs> I don't want the flight attendant to just give me a parachute. If I go to the doctor, I don't want him to say, hey, take the cure. I want to know, if you give me a life vest, are we expecting the boat to sink? I want to know, are we expecting some turbulence that the, I might need to leave this plane? I want to know, is there something wrong with me that requires me to have a cure? Well, when you mention about the curse, the fact that everybody is born as a sinner because of what Adam and Eve did from the very beginning, it makes it a lot easier for someone to want to take a cure when they see the weight and the gravity of their sinful disease. That's why Paul starts this out in these two chapters. So I wanted to get the doctrinal aspect out of the way before we end it on devotional note. And here it is. Number one on your outline. You know what we just read that the Jews do and really the self-righteous do-gooders? Those who grew up in church all their life. They boast in the faith of someone else and thinks this makes them okay. Verse 17, he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law. Well, it's the law of our ancestors. It's the law of our fathers. Up here on the screen, John 5, verses 45 to 47. Christ is saying, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. Christ is calling out the Jews back then that they were trusting in Moses, not God. They were dependent upon his faith. Ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Some of you grew up your entire life in church riding on the coattails of your parents' faith. Moses. But did you ever always obey everything that they told you to do? If you won't obey them, what makes you think that you'll believe Christ if you don't make your faith your own? He continues in John 8. Father Abraham! They answered him, the self-righteous Pharisees, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. Uh, that's wrong. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin, because the entire world is under sin. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. I am saved because I have always been going to this church. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. Hey, if you were really saved, not counting on your parents' faith, then you would make your faith your own. And you would be living your life like them. Oops, not yet. Number two. They know all the answers to the questions while never applying those matters personally to themselves and it's known of others. And we just went through that whole list. Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? 
You preach not to steal. You preach not to commit adultery. You preach not to have idols. Do you not do the same also? Yeah. They know all the answers to the questions. Why? Because they grew up in church. They knew all of the answers to every Bible question. The only problem is they never personalized it for themselves. Matthew 7. What? Where am I at? There we go. Sorry. Getting used to this. Matthew 7, 22 to 23. Many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils? You know, the things like we said we, you told us we were going to do because we knew we were supposed to do that. Hey, didn't we do those things? See, we know the answers. And in thy name done many wonderful works. works. Verse 23. And then will I, Christ says, profess unto them, I never knew you. What's your relationship with God like? I'm not talking about, I prayed the sinner's prayer a thousand times over. I'm not talking about that. What's your relationship with God like? Do you have one? Do you have a relationship with God? I never knew you. That's what Christ says is the requirement for getting in. He has to know you. Do you just know all the answers? Because that ain't knowing Him and that's not Him knowing you. You can check out Luke chapter 10 later on your own time. Similar thing. And number 3, look at verse 25. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. Oh, now we're talking about circumcision. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. There's a lot in that, but to summarize it, when we're talking about circumcision, we're talking about something physically being altered on the outside. And Christ, through Paul here as his vessel, is making the point, it don't matter how altogether you have it on the outside if nothing's going on on the inside. Point three. These guys, they think they have everything cleaned up and looking good on the outside. But it's equivalent to... And they think it's... Did I just jack this up? Okay. They think that having everything cleaned up and looking good on the outside is equivalent to spiritual holiness on the inside. Matthew 23. You know what Christ has to say about that? Woe unto you! You're on a slippery slope is what Christ says. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchers. You know what a sepulcher is? It's a tomb. Which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Is that you? It's interesting we don't have any guests tonight, because that was more for last week. Tonight is talking about those who think that they're okay with God because I got it all together on the outside. Because my family's gone here as long as I can remember. Because I know all the answers. Have ever since VBS. Have ever since Kids Club. I got all the answers. I got all the memory verses down. And as we saw, on Judgment Day, there is not going to be any difference between you and the guys we looked at in Chapter 1 last week. If that decision has never been made personal for you, if you yourself have never chosen to call upon Christ as your Savior when you realize the weight and the magnitude 
and the gravity of your sin and how much you have truly, genuinely been forgiven of. I don't want you guys to wait till you're 35 before you get that. I want you to look into the perfect law of liberty and see it for yourself and to make that choice and that decision personal for you. You bow your heads. Listen, you guys know the drill. I'm not going to belabor you on this. If you are not in a relationship with Christ, you've never crossed over into that, you might want to evaluate yourself tonight if you were genuinely ever saved or if you've just been riding your parents' coattails or if you've just been riding on the fact that you know all the right answers. I do not want to see you on Judgment Day with that look on your eye because you were trusting in your own works and not in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So listen, if you need to talk with somebody tonight, you talk with somebody. You guys that are in here, you know what to do. Don't let tonight go by. If you need to talk with us afterwards, you want to call us afterwards, we are here. All six of your leaders are in this room tonight. We're here. Don't let that pass up. Father, only you know which hearts are in this room that need to receive you. So I pray you'd be working them over. And I pray you wouldn't give them a peace until they get right with you. We love you and I thank you so much for how you have set everything up in this book systematically. You're a good God to us. And looking forward to next week when we can all meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.